0: Codier fortasse is the Latin translation for um, an old expression. Uh, The old old expression that was on the lips of many folks was um, perhaps today. I like the fact that when it's translated into Latin, the, the words get turned back around. And so we actually say today, perhaps. And that's a bit more present, isn't it? When we would wake up in the morning and say today, perhaps. And uh, I think we have drifted away from um, a presence of mind about the coming of of Jesus. We've we've become a little bit like those in the New Testament who said, "Well, they've been saying that forever, um, and he still hasn't come back." Uh, we're also a little taxed because there are things that we have been longing for that really belong in the kingdom of god and and it's it's sad and worrisome and heavy on our hearts that those things are still part of the brokenness of our world and of our lives so today perhaps is kind of the hinge that identifies the the double-mindedness of a christian a follower of jesus because we are to be of two minds we are to be like that fish the anableps Some of you, I think, uh, went and looked that up online, and so you know I wasn't spinning a yarn. There really is a fish called the anapleps with the ability to see in two directions at the same time. Uh, The two eyes on the head of that anapleps can either watch the water in front of the fish or watch the sky above the fish. And that's a perfect example of what it is we're invited to do as followers of Jesus. Day by day, as we say today perhaps. We are watching the sky, but we're also living responsible lives. And uh, the difficulty of all of that is that life does go on, and life is relatively long, and so it's easy to just focus on life and put all of our eggs in that basket. But what we want to do is, uh, rather than that, have the two minds of uh, looking and expecting the second coming and yet living our lives responsibly while we're here. So we're going to spend some time in the Beatitudes, and the reason for that is that I would propose to you that the Beatitudes are kind of the constitution of the Kingdom of God, and I'll defend that a little bit for you. Um, If if we are to be people who are looking forward not to the life after death, but the life after the life after death, again, a bit of a, a tongue twister, then I'm encouraging us to imagine what the life after the life after death will look like. So we have proposed that it's not about heaven, which is some faraway strange place um, of which we have, have had no experience, but it is a renewed heaven and earth. It's a renewed earth that we're looking forward to. And so it is familiar to us, but it is renewed because it's relieved of its corruption. And that is the big problem that we have not only in our lives, but it's a big problem that we have in our creation that it is subject to corruption and longing to be set free. So I want to invite you to use your right brains a little bit, and that's hard for me because my life is in my left brain, but there is a bit of right-brainedness in me when I'm a piano, keyboard, or something like that, but I am terribly analytical and and logical and so on. And so things escape me that don't escape those who have right brains that work. So I read poetry and I don't get it. People who have right brains weep when they read what I don't get, right? So I'm encouraging you to, to employ your right brain and do something artistic. So I want you to imagine the life after the life after death. And then I want you to compose something. About that, So it could simply be photography, that's the idea of the, the slide. And uh, while I was thinking about this, I decided that uh, the second coming of Christ will be January 1st, 2000 and... Oh, I don't know if that's right or not, probably not. But it's to give you an idea that uh, what would it be like to take a picture of what we know when it will have been released from corruption. So maybe it will look exactly like it looks now. It is splendid enough and doesn't seem to be subject to that corruption that we're told in Romans. And so you might want to just take a picture of it and say, I'm pretty sure this will survive and this will be part of the life after the life after death. Or I encourage you to imagine what it would be like in a certain circumstance if the kingdom were to arrive, if the kingdom of God were to arrive soon maybe it's somebody who is well after they have been really sick and we know this because they've been touched by the holy spirit and they have been they have been given a taste of the life after the life after death the kingdom has arrived for them maybe you want to write a song maybe you want to write a poem maybe you want to write a book but uh, take me seriously and submit those things and we will find the right medium by which to show them to the congregation And we will try to engage one another's imaginations as God's created beings and think about not an airy-fairy place with harps, but a real world free from corruption and where there's no more sickness, no more sadness, no more death. What will that look like? Now, thinking about that kingdom or that finally arrived kingdom, as I say, I'm thinking that in the New Testament, what we are given... Um, by, excuse me while I find my way through here, what we are given in Matthew um, is, is essentially the, the, the constitution of a new kingdom. Um, and I'm going to talk a bit about what exactly the kingdom is that we're thinking of. But in Matthew chapter 5, um, when the crowds have been following Jesus all over the Galilee, and he's been healing people, uh, he's been telling stories to people, They all come and they sit down on a high, hilly area, and he teaches them. And the Sermon on the Mount is what we are given by way of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And when he wants to talk to them about how they ought to live, he gives them a set of blessings. Um, It's a word that means to be seriously, deeply happy, content, not happy, just emotionally, but it's the the idea of shalom. It's the idea of being really, really well. So it encompasses success in living. It encompasses um, well-being in our deeper inner persons. Uh, It encompasses well-being in community as we are friends together. But Jesus says, here are the things, there are eight things that he says that constitute a blessed life or a blessed community. And I think that he is talking about the dynamics of the kingdom. So he has come to be countercultural, at least. He has come to establish his kingdom, his father's kingdom on earth. And I think what he does is say, when the kingdom is here, here is the behavior that will mark the blessed life, the deeply satisfied life. First of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to take these apart one by one and we're going to ask questions like, what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit and thus blessed? In another version of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus simply says, blessed are the poor. And we're left asking, how could it possibly be true to say that a poor person has this kind of deep kingdom well-being? That does not seem to make sense to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. So immediately we see that this blessedness is not happiness, not circumstantial happiness by any means, because it wouldn't make sense to say that poor people are circumstantially happy, or that people who have been bereaved are circumstantially happy. They're not. So the blessed thing must be something that's otherworldly, something that is different from what we would normally experience in our in our humanness blessed are the gentle they shall inherit the earth and again counterintuitive isn't it are the gentle people inheriting the earth or are the powerful and violent people inheriting the earth what earth are they inheriting when is this inheritance taking place Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have uh, a restless sense of injustice in our world and long for there to be right living and right judgment. And Jesus says, those people will be satisfied. How will they be satisfied? When will they be satisfied? Is it for now? Is it for the kingdom Why is he saying this to the crowds who have scattered themselves along the hillside to listen to what he wants to teach them about? Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Again, these don't get any more intuitive, they get more and more counterintuitive. Blessed are the merciful, and we look around for the merciful. And we find that actually mercy is not a great commodity in our world. Blessed, further on, says Jesus, are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And our world's not a pure world. It's not a world where people are characterized largely by having pure hearts, clean hearts. Um, There is just an undercurrent of unseemliness in our world. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called sons of God, not even peacekeepers, peacemakers. Um, there are certain traditions in our evangelical faith that are pacifist, and they would gather and um, and uh, treasure in in all of their religious practice the making of peace. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People in our world now are being persecuted largely for their faith. So um, new waves of persecution in China. Um, All the time we hear of people who simply because they own Jesus as their Savior and Lord um, are persecuted. They're not free at the very least, not free to practice their faith. And they, in fact, endanger their lives by declaring their faith in Jesus. And Jesus, as he enters this world, says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're told in Revelation that there are people who are at the throne in heaven praying a prayer that sounds like this. How long, how long until you vindicate the lives of those who have lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. How long? So what is all of this? What are we to make of these matters of the constitution of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? As we go and uh, look for some practical interpretations of these, I love the message because the message is Eugene Peterson's um, sort of attempt to say, here's what this looks like in real life, real relationship kind of settings. And so at the very least, we we can kind of go there and say, if nothing else, this, this constitution of the kingdom gives us ways, all other things being equal, to live meaningful lives and meaningful lives in community. Now they go far deeper than that. But uh, this is at least a sort of a start at saying, okay, what are we going to do with these? How are we going to understand them? So as he deals with the first one that says those who are poor are blessed, or those who are poor in spirit are blessed, Peterson says you might think of it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And when I read that, I think, hmm, Okay. That gives me something to latch onto, right? Something to hold on to. To be poor doesn't seem to be a blessed condition. I'll have to think harder about that. To be poor in spirit, really not sure what that means unless Peterson is nailing it and saying, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Being poor in spirit is to be at the end of your rope where you say, I have no resources left. I, I have nothing more to bring to this. I am impoverished. I can't throw money at it. I can't throw time at it. I can't throw effort at it. Um, I have nothing more. And Peterson says, and when Jesus thought about that, he said, you're actually very blessed to have reached that point because then there's room for God and his rule. The second one, uh, he paraphrases like this. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It sort of couples with the first one, and you say, I have I have no more emotional strength to bring to this loss. And so I'm at the end of my rope, and I need God to comfort me, to fill the ache and the emptiness in my life with his presence, uh, he being the one that is most dear to me. The third one, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I have to chew on that one for a little while. The fourth one, Peterson finds himself translating it like this. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat we begin to get inklings that what it is we're longing for can't be satisfied here and now. That somehow or other what we're longing for is is a God thing. It's some kind of experience of God, some kind of a relationship with God. On to the next four. And Peterson says, You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Sounds like a pithy piece of wisdom. Further, he says, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. There would be a good assignment for 2019, right, to get into our inner persons, into our inner worlds and sort things out with the hope and the promise that then we would be able to see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Blessed when you cause persecution because of of your faith. I remember many years ago, we had a a group of Russian young people visiting our church in Vancouver. And at at the end of their stay in North America, they said um, that they were really perplexed about something and this was in a different political day than than we're in now really but they said when we live as christians we expect to be persecuted but in north america when you live as christians there's there's no persecution and and we don't understand why in our country we just know that we'll be persecuted if we're christians but in your country you you don't get persecuted as Christians. And it, it sort of left them dumbfounded. They they just thought that if, if you take a stand as someone who follows Jesus, you naturally will draw some persecution. So in the Beatitudes, we have this constitution. We have the way we should behave, the way we should live, the way we should live personally, the way we should live in community, the way we should live in our society. And it is different from the ways that the world knows and the ways that we would learn. So, in our anablep kind of life, when we watch the world in front of us, these we would find as we have eyes that look to the skies, because these are matters that belong to the kingdom. This is the way the kingdom will operate fully when Jesus is enthroned, when corruption has been rid from our personal lives, from our community lives, and when it has been rid from the very creation in which we live, then these will be the rule of the day. And so if they will be the rule of the day in that situation, then we ought to be striving already to have them become the rule of the day for us just now. So let me just unpack a little bit about what we mean when we say the word kingdom. We prayed this morning, your kingdom come. We have, as our vision and mission statements, something to do with the kingdom of God being present and the kingdom of God being present because we are present. So we are a church that is saying that we would love for people to experience the presence of the kingdom of God. Well, what is it that we mean by that? What we mean by that is that we would love for people to experience the presence of the coming kingdom of God as though it were already here. Because it is the already here and yet coming kingdom of God that, that we embrace. And that's a hard thing to get our heads around. But it's the way we ought to think. We ought to ask, what is the kingdom version of this situation? And when I ask that question and then draw on the Beatitudes... There is wisdom in the Beatitudes that says the kingdom version of this situation looks like the dynamics of the Beatitudes. It doesn't look like the ways of the world. It looks like the ways of the presence of God, the presence of Jesus in our midst. And that that takes hard thinking and, and hard conversation to say what exactly is the kingdom version of this situation? What would it look like for her if the kingdom were to arrive now? And can the kingdom arrive now? And in what measure can the kingdom arrive now? And we ask, well, what's our place in this? What is my responsibility? And perhaps I go to the Beatitudes and say, I think it's about this. It's it's about the Beatitude concerning gentleness. It's about the Beatitude concerning peacemaking. It's about the Beatitude concerning being pure in heart this is what it would look like if the kingdom were to arrive in this person's circumstances or in my circumstances. So we we kind of mix up some ideas intentionally and say when we talk about kingdom, we're talking about kingship, right, which is a different thing than the objective kingdom. Kingdom s- tends to talk about um, a, a sphere, um, something that is you know, my provenance or something like that, kingship is the role of someone being the king in a kingdom. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we could just as well call it the kingship of God. And so then we might ask, what would it look like in this circumstance if the kingship of God were being recognized? If God were king, if Jesus were king, understood to be that, what would be different? And then the kingly rule is where we would talk about the politics of such a thing and say, if the kingdom of God had arrived, if we were acknowledging the kingship of Jesus, what would the kingly rule turn out to be in the economics and the politics and the science and all of the parts of living life together in a kingdom, acknowledging the kingship of God and Jesus, and allowing there to be this kingly rule among us. It's hard thinking, isn't it? And so the Beatitudes commend themselves and say, well, put these on the table, because if you want to know what the kingdom looks like, it looks like this all the time. If you want to know what kingship looks like, it's submitting to these laws and rules of behavior all the time. And if you want to know what the kingly rule of Christ will look like, it will look like this. When will it look like that? When is the kingdom that we're talking about? Well, it's when Jesus is king in my life. So that's where the first order of business has to be taken care of. Where I say, if I claim that Jesus is king in my life, then to what degree do I adhere to the Beatitudes? Are they the rules of life for me? And how will they become rules of life for me in 2019? Because I want to start every day by saying, perhaps today... But if perhaps today is acknowledging that the kingdom may arrive, when it arrives, all of this is going to be enshrined. And so I should be getting ready for it by living by the Beatitudes as the rules of life for me right today. When Jesus is king in my life, when Jesus is king in our lives, and so we say this is not just a personal thing that I meditate on and have a quiet time around. It is something we put on the table when we're together and say we should relate to one another according to the Beatitudes. They should be the rule. We should be able to say what just happened was a violation of Beatitude number three. Or what just happened ignored what Beatitude number seven was all about. It's only eight rules. But Jesus said, if if you want to know what's going on here, I have come, I have healed a whole slew of you, I have fed you, I have told you stories. Now, here are the rules. Blessed are. This is what a happy life looks like. This is what a happy community looks like. And this is what a happy earth looks like when Jesus is king in our lives. When Jesus is king in our world. So we are looking forward to a literal reign of Jesus in our world right so with all of this in our back pockets we're saying we're living as though the kingdom had arrived because it is arriving but we also fully expect a complete renovation of all that there is into the kingdom of God that will be literally physically temporally present among us in a new heaven and a new earth he will be king of kings and lord of lords. Now when is that kingdom going to come? So let me just, I'll I'll pitch to you kind of a, a general notion of where we are in the sort of the transition of time. We are living in what is referred to in the New Testament as this present age. So right here is this present age, right? So we're all familiar with that. It's the living out of the four, three score and ten years that we have or less or more. The next thing that may happen, and I'm, I'm going to say a lot of mays and some people think because there is such divergence of opinion on all of this that even though I know I'm, I'm right, it's possible that I'm not. Just I'll allow the, that little possibility, right? Because you're like that as well about the things you you know where you think you know. But in trying to make sense of all of this, um, we have questions. The questions are the when. When is Jesus going to come back? I mean, do we seriously think he is coming back? And if so, when's he coming back? And what's going to happen when he comes back? And what's going to happen after what happens when he comes back? And how long does all of that last? And what about those books of the Bible that I cannot understand because I just don't know if there's something literal that's being explained there or if it's some kind of drama or some kind of symbol or some kind of apocalyptic thing. So when we carefully read through the Bible, and that's a wonderful thing to do, and I've been seeing lately a number of people who have been convinced of the Christian faith simply by reading the Bible that when you take it seriously and read it cover to cover, you know, plow through those difficult parts where it's whatever questions brought to your mind, wonderment, um, plow through it and people will say there's something about this book. It's not an ordinary book. It, this can't have just been made up. It is, it, there's too much to it. So as, as we do that, um, then we come across these difficult books and passages but they seem to claim things that I don't know any other way around. So one time um, a few years ago, I did the math with you. Um, that was one of those what was I thinking kind of sermons, right? Where what did it matter that it was 1260 days and 70 times 7 and years of years and a three and a half years and another three and a half years and all that. Because so you, your guys are glassing over it right now, right? well the the point is that those numbers are in there and they're consistent so whether it's in Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation the math is all the same and the math in all of those adds up to seven years adds up to seven years it adds up to seven years made up of two halves three and a half years and another three and a half years and that is what we call the tribulation period now My friend Tom Wright does not agree that there is a seven-year tribulation period. Smart man like that doesn't have a right on this question. So his idea is that the coming of Jesus is going to be a coming and going in one fell swoop. That the coming of Jesus will be the coming with those who have fallen asleep to Come and catch everybody else up and to come right back down. So it's sort of like an elevator in our elevator, a slow ride down, back up, and back down. So he compresses the future into one coming of Christ. So my problem is that I was not only taught, but I keep coming across all of this math, and I don't know why numbers would matter if they're just somehow symbolic because they're not the good numbers the number seven is a good number but seven is only the whole number of this period of time but the tribulation period is is what revelation is all about really and if if we get our story right on the tribulation it appears that jesus will come and that is called the rapture so when he comes those, says Paul, who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to be with everybody that's already gone to heaven and will always be with the Lord. will never be apart from him after that. But then, when we get into the story of Revelation, um, even John, at a very early point in the book of Revelation, John is no longer on earth visiting churches. He's in heaven. And everything that he sees from that point on, Revelation 4 on, is in heaven. And the angel actually says to him, come up here and I'll show you what's going to happen. And then there is a dual story of what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. And what happens on earth seems largely to have to do with Israel because God is not finished with what he started with Israel. But what he started with Israel isn't our business any longer we are one and the same with Israel as a covenant people for sure but he also wants to finish what he started with Israel and he basically allows us to wait until that's done and then comes the second coming so the second coming is when we with Jesus come to earth and the big future begins to unfold after that so what's ahead of us in our world is is terrifying quite honestly Um, it it appears that there will be a a credible world leader who will make a deal with israel and then he'll break his promise so halfway through the tribulation period you'll have three and a half years of relative well-being economically there'll be solutions politically there'll be solutions Um, and somebody will have emerged to garner the favor pretty much of the whole world he will be able to satisfy the problems but halfway through something happens in Israel um, by which he defiles the worship of Israel and he breaks his promise and then there are a series of judgments that are attributed to God so you have woe judgments and trumpet judgments and, and vile judgments and the world is not going to be a happy place And there will be physical war um, waged against the lamb, we're told, against Jesus. So there will be some kind of religious war that will culminate in the coming of Jesus to earth. And presumably he comes to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And there is a war that is the war to end all wars. Now after that's over, then there's what we call the millennium. And the millennium is a thousand years. So is it literally a thousand years? And over that, scholars have disputed and argued for centuries. There are those who say the millennium is just simply a story of world history. That we are all in the millennium, and our role in the millennium is to make the world a better place. So there are those that are called post and all-millennialists. We are probably mostly in here pre which means that we do have a notion that there is a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years when the Constitution of the Beatitudes is the Constitution. Um, Remember when we saw the New Jerusalem, that the nations are coming in and out of the New Jerusalem? How is that, and when is that? If we all go into the future without any of this sort of differentiation, who's reigning and who's coming, who's getting healed, Um, are there babies being born what and where's Satan so story of the Bible is that for a thousand years Satan is actually bound he's not free to deceive the nations. so he has had his heyday in the tribulation he then is taken he's conquered in the second coming of Christ Christ is established as the king of kings and lord of lords to reign on earth for a thousand years we with him among and over the nations and Satan can't trouble humanity any longer. But lest we say it's all well and good, we're done, Satan is set free for a short time, and he unleashes his fury, and once again the world is thrown into chaos, um, and he is finally and utterly vanquished into the lake of fire, and he ceases to be. And then we have eternity. So then we have all of this. No Satan, no corruption, no problems, and we're all good. So there you go in 15 minutes. Why is it so hard for people to understand this, right? Well, I don't know for sure. I I really don't know. We know what the end of the story is, and we know that the perfect society is going to be one like the one Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, So it just seems reasonable to me that if we're going to try to live this double-minded life, we ought to put the Beatitudes on the table and say, okay, how would this work? Because if the kingdom is arriving, then maybe we can get some of this in place now. I mean, maybe the way we participate in our world, maybe the way we participate in politics in our world is to keep this on the table and say, no, 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 this is the solution to humankind's needs. And if it's true that it's perhaps today, then all of this becomes incredibly relevant tomorrow because it, it will be the rule of the kingdom. Or we can set it aside and say, interesting, but I don't know. I've got money to make tomorrow, and off, off we go. Right? There's the challenge to the Christian is to say, do you live with today, perhaps, on your mind? When you pray your kingdom come, Do you understand now that that is a really complicated thing to pray? It's not just, you know, I hope that someday everything's going to be better. If we pray your kingdom come, if we pray that God's name will be kept holy, it's our job to keep his name holy. And a lot of the Lord's prayer is is on, on our list. And then the Beatitudes commend themselves as the way we live as God's new community. So today, perhaps, if the kingdom doesn't arrive fully today or tomorrow, in what measure can it arrive? What would it look like if the kingdom kingship, kingly reign of God, were to arrive in people's circumstances? And what do we bring to the table? What from the Beatitudes would we bring that would help a situation look more like the kingdom of God than it does right now? when Jesus is king in our world. hodie, for Today, perhaps. But someday for sure. You get that? Someday for sure. All that we've lost will be regained. All that was broken will be fixed. And we can see glimpses of it because there's the, there are the remnants of it all around us. So go out with your cameras, with your notepads, with your sketch pad and... Draw pictures, take pictures, write music, write poems about the world that is promising the life after the life after death. The world that gives us an insight into what it will be like when Jesus reigns as king and corruption is set free. Write us stories, write us poems, sing us songs, and uh, let us imagine, because God made us beings with imaginations like him creative imaginations, today perhaps.